What's up, Active Lifers? Welcome back to the Active Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Sean Pastuge. I'm your host. And today's guest is a spitfire. We have Liz Olinick on the show. She is the founder of the Little List Method. She is an exercise physiology PhD candidate who takes us on a walk through everything that you need to know about metabolic flexibility. What that means for those of you who've never heard that term before is how do we create the environment in which our body is burning the appropriate fuel at the appropriate time to perform the task that we're trying to achieve? How do you burn the most fat? How do you burn carbohydrates when it's time? This is the stuff that she goes deep on in her PhD research. It's the stuff that she talks about in depth on the show. We touch on a little bit of the psychology that needs to be in place so that we can stop shaming people for eating the wrong things or eating too much of the things. And I think that you're really going to enjoy the show. So I'm not going to keep you any longer. Let's get you to Liz Olenek. We're going to get to the show in a minute. What I want to talk about first is the new Active Life Enhanced Assessment. We've been getting a lot of questions from you about what do I do when it bothers my knee when I squat, but not when I do anything else. And you're not necessarily ready to work with us as a one-on-one client. And we totally understand that. We've gotten hundreds of questions just like the one I just said. My knee hurts when I do this. What should I do about it? And the honest answer is always it depends. And we need to ask many more questions to give you the best answer. We decided that the best way for us to help you with the thorough answer to those questions is to develop a product, a service that can help you. So we came up with the Active Life Enhanced Assessment. This is a four-day process in which you go through the similar assessment to what our one-on-one clients go through. You get to talk to one of our staff members about what it is that they found on your assessment, and they will give you instruction on how to overcome the aches and pains that have been plaguing you for a long time without going to the doctor or missing the gym, if it's appropriate for you to do that. So if you're interested in jumping into our Active Life Enhanced Assessment, go ahead, check out the link in the story notes, the show notes, excuse me, and we'll see you there. Liz Olenek, welcome to the Active Life Podcast. Thanks for coming. Hello there, everyone. I'm excited for this conversation. It sounds like it's going to be something a little different than what you've heard from me before. So, that's the plan. You know, I feel yeah. like I feel like uh, when I interview people, especially people who've been interviewed in the past, the last thing that I like to do as a, as the interviewee when I'm on shows mm-hmm. is the same thing. Yeah. So let's do something that makes you think a little bit, and then we'll yeah. we'll, we'll get to have some fun. Perfect. In the pre-show, I was asking you about some of your beliefs because I like to challenge mm-hmm. them. I like to learn about them. I like to explore mm-hmm. them. And one of the big beliefs that you had was that metabolic fitness can be measured through exercise. Essentially, exercise is a way to indicate your level of metabolic fitness. And mm-hmm. I would love for you to unpack what that means, and then we can dive into it. Yeah. So to give some background here for those who are unfamiliar with me and my Instagram and really most of my Instagram people, I don't even think know what I do for my PhD work. I research metabolism and this is something that I've done since my master's. So I'm really interested in metabolism, metabolic health as a whole, but specifically something called metabolic flexibility. And this is essentially the way your body responds from a fasted to fed state or like, you know, meal to meal across your day. So essentially those tiny acute responses you have both in the short term to everything that you're eating and doing. But then of course that leads to long-term metabolic health. So like over time, positive, like positive metabolic regulation, we're good, we're healthy, you know, all that good stuff. Um, but being metabolically inflexible can lead to things like type two diabetes is a great example of metabolic inflexibility, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, all of those things, these kind of all can cascade into it. And it's kind of now like a, what came first chicken and egg thing when we talk about the science, but they're, they're related. Um, but your ability to fluctuate substrate utilization. And what I mean by that is how can you switch between carbs and fats or fats to carbs to match the demand of what your body needs. So an example of this is I feed people really high fat meals and I want to see if they can switch their metabolism to upright regulating fat oxidation in response to that. Right. But when you think about exercise, especially like cardiovascular or aerobic, maybe anaerobic, like not just like only like one rep max exercise, like anything that's, you know, causing like more exertion than just like a, like a single PCR going off in the distance. So anything that's stressing your muscles um, is stressing your energy systems because energy systems produce energy. 
that's why they're called the energy systems, right? And so when you think about like, if we're feeding people a bunch of fat and testing that as a stressor of metabolism, well, a great way to test our metabolism as well is how it can respond to exercise and not only respond to it in a way that is appropriately, but switch between as needed. So we don't only burn all fats or only burn all carbs during exercise. We actually will kind of like oscillate between it based off the demands or the intensity of the activity that we're doing. And so people who are more aerobically fit are better at using fat during exercise. So like, that's the irony in like the hit swipe videos of fat blasting hit, where if you just got fitter, you would be doing that anyway. Right. So my theory and a lot of my dissertation work is based off this idea that if we are able to switch appropriately during exercise to the stressor of that exercise and utilize more fat, right? So to preserve carbohydrate for higher intensities or later on down the road or switch between it. So if we really stress our body and then have to recover and then really stress and have to recover, being able to recover is advantageous, not only from a fitness standpoint, but that shows that your muscles and your mitochondria specifically within your muscles are better at responding and recovering from that stressor. And so that is like largely what I built this theory of my dissertation on is this idea that we can not only test this during our response to what we eat, but also exercise is important for metabolic health. And we know that exercise and being more fit directly improves these measures and contributes to it. But my question is, well, why aren't we using exercise as a test of this, right? Because it's directly stressing the systems which regulate this in the rest of our day-to-day life as well. So I believe that not only is exercise something that contributes to overall metabolic health and well-being, but your ability to be more efficient during exercise is essentially a measure of metabolic health as well. So would you measure that? So for, let me go back a step. Yeah. Is, when you're describing metabolic flexibility, mm-hmm. to make it simple, I think that what you're yes. describing is are you able to go from using fat as a fuel to using mm-hmm. carbohydrate as a fuel to using protein as a fuel during the times in which it's most appropriate for your systems yes. to be burning those to accomplish a task at hand? Yes. And generally we just don't even, we ignore protein. We pretend like that's not even a thing because it's so small and so constant. So it's really just that carbs and fat dichotomy. Okay. So now mm-hmm. the next question is how do you test exercise or do you test the blood while exercise is being performed and then make some extrapolation as to what's being burned? How, how do we know what somebody is using while they're exercising? Yes, this is a great question. So Wonderful. everyone's obsessed with their fitness watches, giving them calories. Everybody's not. I don't, I, I hate not everyone. <laughs> I hate them too. But then they're like, okay, well, how do you figure out the exact amount of calories you're burning during exercise? So this kind of answers that question too, which is why I let in with that. Cause everyone's like, well, how do we know what our metabolism's doing? Well, Researchers and labs use something called indirect calorimetry. You can use direct calorimetry, but there's like only two or three of them in the U.S. and we don't ever use them. Um, but indirect calorimetry, anyone who's taking an undergrad ex-phys lab, you've done VO2 max tests. You maybe got really lucky and did RMR substrate utilization labs, but you basically hook people up to a mask that only that it's calibrated to the air in the room and then like a known control gas. And essentially it knows what people are breathing in and then it takes samples of what they're breathing out. So everything you breathe out, it looks like, think of Bane, just picture Bane with a tube that's connected to a big fancy computer. Picture what? And so of Bane, like from Batman. Oh, Bane from Batman. Yeah. Like Bane from Batman, like the, the whole nose and mouth is covered and that's hooked to a tube that goes to this cart. It's called a metabolic cart. And inside it takes samples of everything you breathe out. So it knows what's in the air that you're breathing in and it knows what you're breathing out. So from there, it's able to essentially take samples of your oxygen and your carbon dioxide that is coming back out of you. So it knows based off that ratio of oxygen to carbon dioxide and how much versus the liter of air that you're breathing, how much of your what you're burning is carbs versus fats. So it can tell you that ratio. Um, and that's called your respiratory quotient. And it oscillates between 100% fats and 100% carbs, essentially more or less throughout your day or during exercise. But then from there, what I can do is I can export that data of your total amount of air that you exhaled, the composition and amount of oxygen and CO2 in it. And then I can run these calculations to tell me how much, like I can quantify then how much fat and how much carbohydrate you were literally burning at a whole body level in grams. Like I can quantify your air and figure out, okay, this is how many grams of fat 
you burned during this exercise protocol or during this time you were burning 70% fat and 30% carbs or hundred percent carbs. Like I can then go do that math and figure that out. So a question for you then is hypothetically speaking, if somebody could live in one of these masks, Mm-hmm. We could identify whether or not throughout the day they're burning fat in epoch and and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature, or if they're still just burning carbohydrates and storing fat. Is that correct? Yeah, you can you can quantify the technically the exact amount of calories, and this is what direct calorimetry does. It will have it will lock people in these little rooms and it calibrates it, and then it knows based off them like they live in these little chambers. It can assess their exact total total daily living energy expenditure, their exercise energy expenditure. Like they'll give them like bikes and stuff and put them in there. And then like even figure out how much like they'll, if they measure people's urine, how much nitrogen they're excreting. So how much is protein metabolism? And then from there, they can figure out exactly like how many calories people are eating versus burning versus what was fat, what was protein, what was carbs. Like you can literally know, uh, yeah, everything. And then knowing if people are eating and energy excess or deficit, what they're expending the most, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So now once we have that kind of data, mm-hmm. one of the things that I've seen people obsess over is workouts that burn more calories. You know, like mm-hmm. Orange Theory made their name on calories burned in the orange zone. Mm-hmm. Aside, I'm not going down yes. that path right now. And I've talked to people from my mom to my wife, to our clients about, it doesn't matter how many calories you burn in the workout. It matters Mm -hmm. how many calories the workout burns between that workout and the next one that you do and which calories the workout burns after the workout and through the next one. How does somebody know who doesn't have a direct calorimetry? What what did you even, I don't even know what you called it. Direct or indirect calorimetry. Calorimetry. It's a fancy way. Calorimetry is just quantification of calories. calories. It's just measurement of calories. I I imagine that 99.999% of the people listening to this don't have access to one of those machines on a regular basis. They do not. They do not. No. So, so, So it becomes this like, well, how do I know if I'm burning fat or carbohydrate after I work out? How does somebody know that without a machine? You don't. Um, there is now like Lumen is like now that new device. And I think that acute respiratory gas samples are not going to be the same thing. I think the idea is fine. And I know people are going to be very excited about it, but I also think that like, I don't know, like it's gimmicky and metabolic flexibility is more complex than taking these individual samples and all of this stuff. So I usually tell people to, to not worry about it because when we think about like most of the fitness trackers that are telling you calorie assessments are based off of some algorithm they're not going to share for years and scientists will test it before it's outdated or the idea that heart rate and calorie expenditure are linear, linear, but that's only true quote unquote, when we're thinking of steady state cardiovascular exercise, like that's going to be the most close, like one for one of that estimate. But heart rate varies so much with so many different activities that it's and sometimes you're doing like it, you're going to have a lower heart rate during a resistance training session. So it's not going to quantify the metabolic work that your muscles output it. So it's going to underestimate your calories where you might need to work harder to recover from that session, where if I go do my steady state run that I'm accustomed to and I'm trained for right now after this interview, I'm not going to spend as many calories as I did in my weight training session this morning, right? Because it's efficient. Your bodies get efficient as they go. So what I tell most people is that and then they hate this is that you don't worry about how many calories you burned in your session. You can't, you can't quantify it. I can tell you if you come into my lab, how many calories you burned during my exercise test. And the sad reality, it's probably not as much as you even think it is. Um, and our bodies are so complex and so smart and how they respond to recover or adapt or modify the rest of your days in response to your workouts anyway, that it's not like a complete picture of like, well, I burned 800 calories in my workout so I could get to eat 800 more, but maybe you burn 800 calories during your workout, but because you were tired, you didn't go for a, a walk later in the day. And then you expended less for your whole day. Like there's more to it than just that acute picture. So I usually tell people to train hard, try to always improve their work capacity just essentially being able to do more over time, gaining fitness, um, the capacity to just, you know, and whatever their goal is, and then focus on the things that we can control. And that's going to be sleep, nutrition, and probably, and pretty much protein. I've done this. I've done like my key things for like metabolism before and other things. And a lot of things people worry about is the calories expending during their workout. But if they're trying to be the most efficient in their calorie expenditure as a whole, they're going to sleep well, they're going to fuel appropriately to their needs 
and they're probably going to eat enough protein. Like that's usually what I tell people is worth their energy and time than trying to perfectly quantify what they do in their workouts because it's, it's, it's pretty much impossible to know what you actually burned. If you had to rank them. Yeah. Sleep, nutrition, workouts, important. Go. If we're thinking about. Building metabolic flexibility. Flexibility. So the two things that are the direct predictors of metabolic flexibility in the literature are fitness status and adiposity. So, right. But, but the question is how do we, when it comes to those three, I'm going to say sleep. I think that's probably the most neglected when it comes to all things, metabolism. Um, this one's hard, but I'm going to say exercise. So nutrition is third. nutrition, Mm -hmm. not saying nutrition is not important, but I think that exercise is literally such an important driver of metabolic flexibility and metabolic health that like that comes before that. Like I, I, I've, I've challenged myself in this thought before. Like if pe- you could tell people to only work out or only control their diet, what would I do? Maybe it's cause I'm an exercise physiologist. I don't know. Maybe I'm biased, but I think there's just, I don't know. There's a lot of benefits that come from that. Well, I think that, you know what? I'm not going to think for you is, is, yeah. is part of that because you're assuming that there's a baseline of okay, we're not going to be egregiously ridiculous with our diet. We're not going to be eating McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We're not going to be eating cornflakes as snacks in between. And we're saying, okay, I don't care what quantity of protein, carbohydrate, and fat you eat as long as you're eating real food. And Mm -hmm. that's the minimum standard of diet that makes it less important than exercise. Or is it that you're saying, you can eat whatever you want, McDonald's, Taco Bell, and and Wendy's for your three meals, as long as you exercise, that that would be more important than eating healthy and potentially being sedentary. It's hard because obviously dietary composition is going <laughs> to impact these things because um, that's where the adiposity status comes in, theoretically. Adiposity meaning body composition, yes? Yeah, I say adiposity because it's literally just fat tissue that people have right. and is related to it, but yeah, it is body composition. Um, so, I mean, all things created equal, if you're eating, you know what I mean, like the same relative amount, I mean, you might be healthier eating the more whole foods, quote unquote. Um, but as a whole, I think with most like, exercise literally directly influences the systems of which allow us to more efficiently utilize substrate. Like literally going for a walk after you eat a meal regulates your blood glucose, which regulates your metabolism and requires less insulin. So so like it can have a direct acute impact. So I shouldn't have just had a meal and then sat down to talk to you. It's okay. But you're young and healthy and fit. So you probably, your body's probably just fine. Mm. I don't know what you ate, but it's probably processing that just, just perfectly fine. Honestly, it, yeah. was, it was just watermelon. It was just a oh, watermelon. Yeah. I mean, I just ate a bowl of blackberries. So we're on the same, we're really influencing people here. Fruit, to stick fruit. Healthy eat diet. fruit people. Eat your fruit. So yeah. As a, as a exercise physiology PhD candidate. Yes. How does the way that we are currently as a society, uh, talking about fitness, obesity, food, like how does the, the current, the current current of information and narrative coming out, how does it make you feel on a day-to-day basis? And what I'm describing, I'll give you a really specific example, like the cosmopolitan, this is healthy issue. I don't know if you saw that, mm-hmm. if you know what I'm talking about. Like, what, yeah. what's, your, what's your initial response to that kind of stuff? Because you're in it. Mm-hmm. So I'll give a great example. So I do like, I, I intentionally follow and consume information that challenges my earlier biases in my field because I want to make sure when I'm aware of everything going on. But two, I like to think through things and I'm very much someone like my podcast is called the messy middle because I think that like, obviously a lot of this stuff is so dichotomous and there's usually some sort of like, well, this is kind of true over here and this is kind of true over here and everyone's then confuddling these things over here. So that's usually my response to everything It's like, well, and then like kind of piecing together what I see from both ends of the spectrum. So my second, third year of my PhD, uh, 2019, I took two classes on obesity in the same semester. And one was in the exercise science department taught by my advisor, who's brilliant and like super smart um, in this specific niche and area. And then I took one up in nutrition, which was um, taught from a professor who's like an expert in like gut and obesity and the brain axis and all that stuff. And I thought it was so cool to take those two at the same time because the information I was learning was based on the same science, but through two different lenses, if that makes sense. So the very classic exercise physiology thing is probably what's getting kind of your kind of you're not allowed to talk about anymore is like or having the opinion of of like calories in, calories out. We need to be, you know, monitoring our dietary intake 
like weight loss is a little more simple than I, than it actually is kind of mindset. Um, but you're saying, you're saying we can't talk about that culturally or because it's not true culturally, culturally, like there's that thing. So I actually gave a talk in that class called fitness versus fatness. Cause there's two articles that came out one out of USC and one out of Pitt at the same time from two lead obesity researchers making the argument for fitness and then making the argument of like, or like fitness without worrying about nutrition intake. And then making an argument of like obesity is too hard to regulate. We should just get people to exercise. So there was like two big articles that came out in 2019 arguing this exact topic, but both of them, thing. but both of them suggested that obesity is not a good thing for people. Yes. Both of them came to the same conclusion. So I gave this big talk in my class and I was like, yeah, we're all, and this is what I thought was funny about taking the two different classes, because I think that there's more gentle ways to talk about these things than some maybe people from my realm of the field go about, because I do believe, cause I took the other class and it was cool to learn about the, the like little intricacies of how our brain and like bodies react to things that are more than just like controlling calorie intake. And I do believe that obesity and weight regulation is a lot more complicated than a lot of people in our field give it the time for. And I think if we could all just stop yelling at each other, mm-hmm. we'd help more people out. Um, but it was funny because I, I did that and I loved it because I pulled out all the, the like epilogical data and studies that they did and pulled up these figures of all these 10 year diet interventions and like diabetes regulation studies. And then you have all this information that these two people are basing their opinions on. And it literally just kind of came down to like excess adiposity isn't great. It is inflammatory. Maybe it's like not promoting health, but it is complicated to get like weight loss and weight maintenance and like at a population level is complicated. We're better off getting people to move. You know what I mean? Like we should all be encouraging exercise and appropriate exercise and like, like making sure that people try to eat the least like assholes as possible. Like mm-hmm. we all come there. It was coming to the, it was like really funny. Cause like, I wish I, I should have, I would have pulled it up if I knew we were having this conversation, but you had all this data that people were kind of interpreting like differently and trying to like zing each other. Kind of like you see on the internet, yeah. like, well, Hey, what gotcha. About this? Well, gotcha. Hey, got, gotcha. And I'm like, you're all, and I sit here and I watch it online. I'm like, you're all yelling the same thing. And you're just confusing people anymore. We're making the same recommendations. We're just making them with different approaches and lenses. And that's where individuality comes in anyway. It's like, we're all trying to force one size fits all on everyone all the time where you're like, we're all kind of saying the same thing here, everybody. And we're just yelling at each other while we're doing it. Um, but I thought it was cool though, to see that parallel in those articles and then to sit in those two classes, because it was like, it allowed me to view things through two different ways of thinking. And I was like, well, you're both kind of wrong. Cause in the nutrition class, I would always raise my hand and be like, well, what about exercises impact on this? Like, why are we talking about exercises impact on this? Because it does nutrition departments forget to talk about exercise, right. And nutrition and exercise departments forget that exercise and nutrition is hard for people to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, like, <laughs> like, I feel like they're both missing that thing. Well, I think the thing that you said that was the most resonant for me was, can we be a little bit gentler with people about this? Because it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a thing where I had a conversation with my wife last week. I have a herniated disc in my neck. I know I have a herniated disc in my neck. 95 to 98% of the time, it's a nothing burger. Mm-hmm. Then there's a three to 5% where the other day my daughter, who's four years old, jumped off the top of the couch and tried to sit on my shoulders. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that, that sucks. Cause now daddy's in pain. It's going to be 10 days until that feels mm-hmm. better. And during those 10 days, I watch what I eat much more carefully than when I'm not in pain because I'll work out when I'm not in pain and mm-hmm. I won't work out. Like I'll go for walks when I'm yes. in pain. And I told my wife, it's interesting because when I'm watching what I eat, it's so much harder to eat healthy. Like when mm-hmm. I'm working out, I don't think about eating ice cream. I don't want ice cream. Yeah. When I'm not working out and I'm like, now is not the time to eat ice cream. I'm like, yeah, I want some ice cream. Mm-hmm. And so she's like, yeah, welcome to my everyday. You know, and it was, it was interesting for me to hear her say that because it was, I feel like for the first time I actually was conscious about what I was thinking about when it came to my nutrition. Mm-hmm. And I understood a glimpse <laughs> of what it's like for somebody to, <clears throat> to deal with that on a regular basis. Yeah. I still think it's a mistake for us to go either way in the spectrum to say mm-hmm. this is healthy or to be dismissive of it and be like, it's just calories in calories out. Stop making yeah. it so complicated. So the thing that has challenged me the most, and I will say, I don't think I have like a raging, amazing metabolism, but I've been very active my entire life. I was thinner growing up. I'm predisposed to probably be more muscular. I've always done sports. As soon as I stopped doing sports, I still continue to work out like 10 hours a week. Like I've just, that's just who I've always been. And so for the most part, I don't, I've definitely been smart about how I've fed myself. Cause I, I do, I do gain weight if I don't like not, I don't rig- rig- rigorously monitor, but if I go like all willy nilly, like 
then yeah, I gain weight. I'm a human being. But for the most part, I haven't had to have this like extreme conscious effort on these things. Right. My boyfriend, however, we've been dating for like four and a half years now. He's lost a hundred pounds and maintained that now for like, I don't know, I want to say six or seven years or something like that, which is very successful when you think of weight loss. So he lost it before you. Yes. He lost probably the last like 30 pounds while we were together, 20, 30. He's maybe, it's hard though. He's recomped a lot. He's gained a lot more muscle back. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to say he's probably lost like 20 to 30 more pounds of fat since we started dating. Um, And we've been living together since like the first year we started dating. And I, it was interesting once we started, cause like I never thought about the things that I do until I saw it through his lens of that kind of thing. So like, I used to keep tons of snacks around and he's like, Hey, like, can we like, maybe like only pick a few things each week that we have around in the house. Cause I just require a ton of calories for my tiny little body mm-hmm. and not that he doesn't, but he eats a lot more meals for, to meet that. And so it was interesting to me to see someone who had been obese, if you're allowed to say that, um, and had lost it. And now he, I mean, my boyfriend runs ultra marathons. He works out like weight trains five days a week. Like he's incredibly, incredibly fit, but even still to sustain that he has to be so much more like take a second thought and everything he eats than I do kind of thing where I'm like, Oh, I'll just go eat ice cream. It's not a big deal. My body weight will barely even fluctuate. I don't care. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he, it's not that he can't do that, but he has to be a lot more aware of how frequently he can do that versus me. And I never realized that. And like, I've never been someone who had those very strong opinions of like, it's calories in calories out. You just willpower. Everyone's lazy, but I never really appreciated how much more, effortful it was at like mentally and emotionally for people who maybe especially like losing weight and sustaining it is harder than it's like for than it is for people like me who have never really had to change from their like basal weight i mean i've gained a lot of weight from weight training but i don't fight my body you know what i mean like to be the weight it is versus people who have been higher and come down back down it's it's harder it's harder for them to sustain that and i never had that appreciation until i watched how he had to like and I know a lot more about nutrition than him. So I've helped him do things a lot more healthily along the way. I'm like, mm-hmm. Hey, you probably need a little bit more buddy. <laughs> like we're not, we're not in like the apocalypse here. Um, so I've helped him kind of like come around to like healthier approaches to what he was doing too. But I never, I never saw it through that lens until I saw it through that lens. And I was like, well, shit, if people like has someone they love that much, you know what I mean? And saw what they like, kind of how they approach things, they probably would be a lot less rude to people yes. about fat loss. Well, you, you know, know what I mean? Like you'd be a lot nicer to people. You know what it is for me? It's, it's, I used to follow an account and I won't name them cause I stopped following it. Cause I felt like this, I'm all about the truth. Yeah. I'm all about like, let's acknowledge. Sure. If you eat less calories, then you burn, you will lose weight. I also understand that just telling somebody who is struggling to eat less calories than they burn, that if they would just eat less calories than they burn, they would lose weight is not an empathetic way to tell somebody how to lose weight. It's not no. going to help anybody. They're just going to be like, I know, fuck you. I've been trying. You think I'm yeah. not trying? So, mm-hmm. so the way I look at fitness is some of your, fi- like it's an investment. And what, th- what that means is there are days that when we program for somebody, we will write a workout that is specifically geared towards improving tendon health and integrity. That has nothing to do with your strength. It has nothing to do with your flexibility. It has nothing to do with your metabolic conditioning. It is straight up build tendons that can absorb the volume and the load that you're going to throw on them in your mm-hmm. other workouts. That's your whole focus today. Yeah. That's an investment. Yeah. Building muscle is an investment because if I go into the gym and like you said, my metabolic rate stays fairly low, having more lean muscle mass will keep my base metabolic rate fairly high as a, as a relative you know, fraction of, of if I didn't, Mm -hmm. but that day I'm not going to burn more calories. I'm not going to be like, Oh good. I got, I got lean today. Yeah. That's how I look at fitness. And this is why I think of having like a fitness first approach, I guess. I know like people might say like a food first approach, but I think food is a lot more messy and complicated for people. I think it's a lot easier to get people to invest in muscle and invest in developing their like meta baseline metabolic capability and invest in their fitness. And then it does, I think, makes all those other things easier along mm-hmm. the way. It's easier. I feel like, it, I, I, you know, I, I'm not a psychology, so I don't know this, but I feel like you, it is, I think my friend Kate actually studies sleep. So I think there's data to this, but like, it's easier to sleep 
better and more routinely, like exercise positively influences that, right? And sleep is a huge issue for people that negatively impacts everything else they do. But then I feel like if you're moving your body and you're well-rested, then like making nutritional choices is easier, right? It's not like this most, most mentally taxing thing in the world to do. And we're like talking to these people who are like parents who are sleeping five hours a night. Like they barely think they can exercise at all. They're not sleeping. And we're like, just eat less. That's it. Just eat less. And you're not actually solving people's problems. You're just making them feel shitty because everyone knows eating less Cosmo, like every magazine I had in stacks growing up told me this, like every Instagram account said this up until really the last few years or until we were like, well, maybe we should like be nicer about this kind of thing, even though that did swing into more hyper extreme on the other side. But like, we're not actually helping people address their issues. We're just telling them calories in calories out. And then, and then we go and tell them what reverse dieting and metabolic adaptation. And it's not that straightforward. And I'm like, you're literally just like, Mm-hmm. you're not actually helping people. You're just throwing in from, you might as well just throw a textbook at their head and say, go fish. <laughs> like, like you're not actually helping people. So yeah, no, I completely agree. That was a kind of a tangent, but like, that's why I believe in an exercise first. Cause one exercise directly improves metabolic fitness and metabolic capacity and health. You're going to metabolize the things that you are eating. Even if it is Taco Bell better, if what you're are, active. What right? about, what about, yeah, of course. But what about the psychology of it? I mean, you, you, you talk about exercise and nutrition and yeah. I think that that's, it's necessary. People need to understand exercise and nutrition, at least at a base rate. Yeah. I also think that the psychology allows mm-hmm. people to apply their knowledge. Yeah. And so as an exercise physiology candidate, yes. what is your level of education around psychology to be able to get people to apply this? Not a lot, honestly. And that was a big reason. Um, I, I have my friend, Kate is a PhD psych candidate that I have my podcast with. So she does a lot of contributing to that. Um, but we don't get that right. You don't take, I took psychology. I took like three psych classes in my undergrad, right? Doesn't that need to change? No, I think so. I think there needs to be more. I know, uh, uh, I have a few friends that are PhDs in psychology that are doing a really good job at educating on this in the field. And I think that I don't even know if it's at the, so I have all these things about what at our PhD level we should have, because I also don't think anyone with a PhD in exercise physiology knows anything about programming either for having a degree in exercise, right, right, right. but like <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. So maybe we should learn how to like teach back squats before we go into a whole nother field. Um, I mean, it, I theoretically could have taken it as an elective. You know what I mean? But like, theoretically, is a, isn't it crazy yeah. that you can graduate with a PhD in exercise physiology and not understand the difference between a back squat and a lunge? You're too, you're preaching to the choir. It's insanity. Yeah. I'm like, no, you should have to be able to design comprehensive fitness programs for people with a varying degree of need. Yeah. You, like we should be able to take the spectrum and be like, write a program for the whole damn thing. Give me yeah. one for the person here, 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 all the way down the line. Yeah, no, there's people in my department I wouldn't trust a program for Right, which, which, which to me yeah. makes the knowledge useless. Because, yeah. because without the psychology to connect and without the, the, the education on how to deliver the education in an applicable way for the client, mm-hmm. you're, you might as well be a textbook. Yeah. And that's a big thing I think missing even from like personal trainers and probably a lot of health professionals that are working one-on-one with people is that inability to communicate it in a level that people understand. Yes. Like they don't like understand and and care about. Yeah. Not to toot my own horn, but my, my Instagram does well because I take science and I make it entertaining and people actually can take something away from it. Instead of me just being like, here's what the NSCA textbook on, on this tells you today. And just like, people don't care. You have to make them care. We have to show them why, but you actually have to give them something that like turns the light bulb in their brain off for them to be like, Oh, Okay that's why I need to care about this, or this is why this works, or this is how this works, or, or I get that. Um, and I do this with undergrads actually all the time, because I'm like, listen, you're going to be DPTs and they don't teach you how to do any of this shit in this program. And you will not leave my labs unless <laughs> I make sure that you at least know a little bit about this because you're the future of our field. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, so no, I mean, I wish there was more of that. Or like, even with coaching and coaches don't, they're not trained how to coach. I don't know how to, I didn't know when I first started my business, the first thing I realized was like, great, I'm smart about exercise, but I literally do not know how to coach. Mm-hmm. Like I am that, you know, years ago. And I have, I have since had to stop one-on-one coaching because the demands for my PhD, but if I was good to bring it back again, it would be like a learning curve again. I'd be like, 
shit, I have to communicate with people again, <laughs> like, and disintegrate, distill that information to them in a way that like, they can actually make it meaningful for them. And no one teaches that, especially when you get to the psychology of yeah. it. I mean, humans are so messy and complex in their relationships to food and fitness and their bodies and like their own get in their wayness about anything. Like you have to work with that. When you're ready to get back to one-on-one coaching, we can help you. We, we, okay. we, we take that into account. At Active yeah. Life. So the, the, the two year hiatus for finishing your PhD. Is no, not track? that. Not, is not there that. a track for that? There's, there's not. There, <laughs> no, I'm the, just kidding. The, the, tr- the track is, um, cool. You know it. How yeah. do you make your, how do you help your client care about it? Yeah. So, so I want to shift gears a little bit. Yeah. And I, and I, because I'm the host, I get to do this and you're the one stuck in the middle, the messy yeah, middle. Fine. I, I want to play both sides of the coin mm-hmm. on, I believe science is unfortunately under attack because we're not allowed to tell people the truth. Yes. And I believe that science oftentimes lacks empathy. And, yes. and so, and so, and so I want to play both sides and get your response. Okay. So the one side is we talk about calories in calories out, for example, mm-hmm. right? If, if you just continue to tell people, Oh, calories in calories out. Um, that's all it takes. Like stop making it more complicated than it is. Eat less. You'll lose weight. You'll stop being fat. You'll be happier. You'll be taking ownership over it. Like get over yourself and just eat less. That sucks. You're an asshole. If you do that, Yes. <laughs> the other, the other side of it, the other side of it is like, by the way, I think that probably maybe one person in the world. And I'm saying that because I, I haven't found them, but I assume that they exist who actually le- learned how to lose weight and lost weight in a meaningful way would do it that way. Everybody else would be like, that's not going to work. You're just, it honestly might be Regis. That might be my boyfriend. He might be that one lonely person. There you in the go. World. We found, I think he, I think I found the one. <laughs> we found it. The, the other side is that works. And, and, and if we can't tell people the truth, you know, cause people yeah. would tell me like, stop being such a snowflake, stop being so soft. Why can't we just tell people the truth that they can't handle it? They're not ready for it. Yeah. Where's the, where is the messy middle on that? So I think that we, the messy middle is education and grace kind of wrapped into one is how we do this. Right. Because then we have the the hyper swing on the other side. Who's like literally never say the word calorie. You know what I mean? Like you cannot say the word calorie. You cannot say the word fat, like because because of bubble wrapping. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. Like if people truly have that unhealthy and exercise, in nutrition relationship, they need actual literal licensed professionals in that realm. Right. right? They're not, they're, they're not the ones we're not, they're not the ones we're talking to. Right. They're not ready for your information. Yeah. They are, they, I completely think we should respect. And I think as like content creators, we have to recognize that those people are going to find their ways into our stuff. So we should maybe not be raging insensitive assholes all the time. Um, but there's, okay. If we remove the small niche of those people who literally do have like licensed needs for registered dietitians or eating disorder therapy or whatever it is, whatever it, the, the formal names for all those things are, we have humans that are just confused, right? Mm-hmm. And they know they need to eat less, but they don't actually, like, you have people who don't even know what the difference between a carb protein and fat is. And you're like, just telling them to eat less. Well, they, that makes no, they have no idea how to apply that other than just cutting the volume of their food. But we know as smart professionals that cutting the volume of like a hundred carrots Mm -hmm. is a lot different than cutting the volume of a half a candy bar. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that is very, very different. And so we're not teaching people like, Hey, you need to eat less, but fullness and satiety are real things. And you can help regulate that with things like appropriate sleep, regular exercise, like the, like the types of macronutrients that you're eating kind of thing. Like the size of your meals, like how long you spend in an energy deficit. Like we're not, and I think we're getting better at this, but there's still, it's still, you know, being confuddled with the calories in calories out demanding scream at people stuff, but we need to give people grace for being human. We can't get mad at them when like they, they, they they're going to struggle, right? People are going to struggle with this. It's a lot of it. It's habits, you know what I mean? And like things that they've been subconsciously, maybe not even know that they're doing, or like they've been, they've been beating themselves up for, we don't need to just like punch them in the face one more time. Right. And then actually giving them tangible, like helping them understand, okay, yeah, you have to do this, but this is the why and the how people need little like takeaways. They need a why and a how to do it. Or they're going to be like, it's the same. It's just like the same thing to throw the textbook at the face kind of thing. That doesn't help people unless you say like, unless you're specifically saying, Hey, here's this read page 87, paragraph three and apply that to your morning tomorrow. Right. And and then we'll discuss it. 
and then we'll discuss it. Like there's, it's like literally saying, giving your students a textbook and saying, here you go, look like, here you go, idiots, figure it out. See you tomorrow. Right. Versus saying, hey, today we covered this topic. We need to go review this. We'll discuss this on Wednesday. It's mm-hmm. like that, like we can all relate that back to school, right? And so I think that's where that happy medium is. It's like, we need to educate people. And I don't think people are saying that like, you can't tell people the truth, but we can't just like yell the truth at people. We have to meet them where they're at and everyone's at a different place, right? Like if my mom asked me one more time how to get more protein in her diet, I'm going to slam my head into the wall, but she truly doesn't get it. You know what I mean? Like she doesn't get it. So I have to give her examples of meals to make rather than just being like, well, here's a list of hundred foods. Cause we do that all the time and say, here's all the foods that have protein people. And they're like, okay, great. I know chicken has protein, but like, I'm still not hitting my target. I have a new, I have a dietitian client yeah. who I was helping develop her business. And mm-hmm. I told her, I'm like, one of the things that you should do for your business is build a cookbook that has recipes for you need to get more protein into your diet. You need to get more fat into your diet. You need to get more carbohydrates into your mm-hmm. diet. These are good meals for before your workout. These are good meals for in between your workouts. These are good meals for resting days. These are good meals because they take a long time to eat and they're fairly low calorie. And so they have mm-hmm. high satiety with them. And you're not going to feel as though you didn't eat anything, although the calorie is fairly low. So I told him like, build out a book like this Mm -hmm. with recipes, with full macro balances in them so that people can just go. And now someone who's a coach can reference your book and say, Mm -hmm. use these foods, use these nutrition diets. So thank you for that. That's confirmatory. So no. And I think that helps. And I know this because I'm someone who I talk to my following I ask them questions. I, you know what I mean? Like I'm in their heads. I know what they struggle with. I I'm asking them all the time because I generally want my content to serve people and help them. But I, I've also had to learn how to communicate on social media. And I came from science, right. And science didn't teach me how to do any of this stuff. Science doesn't teach you how to be like a good human or like how to actually interact with humans. It teaches you how to do research in a lab where like you use people for their oxygen data and then kick them out. Right. Kind of thing. I mean, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> Breathe into this about- and get the fuck out. I know. I'm very nice to my participants. Please, no one tell the IRB. They just finally approved me. I'm very nice to them. Um, but it, it it is that. And that's I think that's exactly because people are like, well, I hate tracking macros. Most people like they're I hate tracking macros. I don't want to do it. I don't have time. Do but if you can tell them, hey, here's a couple really good breakfasts that can help you meet solve the issues that you're doing, people know what two eggs, two pieces of toast and some peanut butter or whatever, and a thing of berries or whatever looks like. They they can be like, oh. I can do that. You know what I mean? Or they can like be like, oh, I need to add this to my lunch so I don't bonk in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Not add 45 grams of protein to this no. meal. Like that means nothing yeah. to people. You need to say, you need to add like a like a piece of chicken the size of your fist to your meal yeah. or whatever. The expert needs to do the math. Because the, the client, like I, I would be the worst client in the world for nutrition coach. Because I'd be like, pull out your scale. I'd be like, no. I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a slave to the scale that I stand on. I won't be mm-hmm. a slave to the scale that my food stands on. It's not happening. Just help me understand what would be the right thing for me to eat. So I want, I want, I want to stay in the, in the science lane because I think that yeah. science has another major problem. And mm-hmm. the problem is while yes, in a lot of ways it's under attack. It also, in my opinion, has just punted on credibility in the last mm-hmm. 15 years. It's, now, if you want to read a study, you almost need to start with who funded it and then you can read it because it's like, oh, got it. Coca-Cola funded this study because they wanted it to show up that drinking Gatorade is better for you than drinking something else. Yeah. How did we sort through that? Like, so I mean, I, even, even you're going to school right now for this thing and you have to be discerning about what you're learning and say, who wants <laughs> me to learn this? So I think the biggest thing is asking, and I say this Because one, again, I have a really great advisor who has kind of navigated these things and it's asking like, okay, maybe someone's funding it, but how much like the better question is, and sometimes you can't disclose this or you don't know is how much control do they have over what the data is reported? That's the biggest thing more. I mean, obviously you might get a scientist who's like, yeah, I'll take your money and I'll make sure like you might get crappy things. Mm -hmm. But, um, I was just like, I was just at a conference, um, recently and, there was a lot of supplement data and people were like, yeah, these supplements suck, but they'll give us money. And then they're ticked and they never come back to us again. Cause we won't report what they want. So it's hard because some people are doing this, this data, not just supplements, but all this stuff 
with integrity of saying, Hey, you're going to give us money. It's going to be blinded. You will never see the results. You only see the finished product. You know what I mean? Like you don't have a say in what we report, but you will get to know what we report. So there's one way of that happening, which does happen. It, it does. There are good honest scientists, but then it's, it's hard to know because you're just reporting a conflict of interest or funding sources kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And if it's a really well, and that's where it's hard because you, you have to be in the field to know if something's really well designed did the stats make sense? You know what I mean? Like, did they, did they overinflate? And we'll see the media does this. Well, like someone will see like a, a, a fraction of a increase and they'll report it as a percent. Yes. And the percent isn't meaningful. So you just have to kind of like tease through what do they actually do? What are they saying? Kind of thing. And that's where it's hard because I don't want to be like a gatekeeper to science, but knowing the methodology and the other literature in the field around it helps for that comparison of knowing, does this make sense? You know well, what I mean? mean? But the only person who's reading the methodology is the data scientist. Like even even when when I when I look at a study, and I yeah. look at study, I try to look at a few studies a week. Yeah. On 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 something that is interesting to me, just so I mm-hmm. stay sharp in my in my practitionership, even though I'm effectively a, a relegated to useless businessman at this point. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> so, I I I look at them and I'm like, I'm not reading the methodology of how they did this. Like I'm not reading the, how, how they approached doing this experiment. So I'm missing a major piece. And part of that is because if I read how they did it, I wouldn't be like, Oh, they use that spectrometer instead of that. Cause I don't know. Cause you don't know. Yeah. No. It's hard. It is hard. And then you have to like rely on people who are experts in those specific niches. Yes. To tell you and consumers think that we're all experts on the same thing. And then it's hard. Cause like, you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't, I can't read. I probably can't read the papers that you read every week. You know what I mean? And come out with the same confidence in my messaging that like you would do with mine, right? Mm-hmm. Like with similar levels of knowledge and education. And so, and that's where it does become hard and tricky because it's like, you have to have so much knowledge beyond the piece of paper in front of you. Yes. To, too. To, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult. And, and I want to, I want to acknowledge that just because it's difficult does not give people the leniency to not do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, if it's hard, it's worth it. That's- I had this question in a Q&A the other day and someone was like, I want to start actually like doing my own research, quote unquote, as people love to say, like, how do I do this? Where do you find your resources? It's like, well, I'm like, I use PubMed. I read scientific articles. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't want to gatekeep science. I absolutely think that you should be able to, I mean, I communicate science on my platform because I want other people to be able to have that knowledge. I think that should be like generals, like people's knowledge. But I was like, you just have to be careful. Like you can't just read one thing or two things to figure out what you're doing. I was like, but the best way to do that is the same way that I did it. I mean, people think getting a PhD is like, it's this super specific course of action. No, you're just in control of yourself and you're just out there figuring it out half the time. But the way I learned how to do it is the way that I tell everyone else to do it. You have to read a shit ton. That's it. If you want to be able to self do your research and understand things, you just have to read everything, but you can't really read things that support what you want to find or debunk what you don't want to find or whatever. Like you kind of have to like read and read and read. And the more you, 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 this applies to everything though, right? The more you read or write or do like the more you become aware of what you're doing. And that was my advice to people was like, that's great and fine. And I think you should do that, but you're going to have to read a lot more than maybe that you intended not, there's not like going to be a blog post. You need to read the blog post, pull up all the sources of the blog post, read all those studies. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of like what you have to do. So yeah, you got to dedicate yourself to really understanding something in full, or you need to find people who you believe have dedicated themselves to understanding mm-hmm. in full and choose to trust them yes. and, and ask them questions where you need more clarification and direction. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. And, yeah. and anyone who's good is happy to get those questions. Yeah. I think that all people that are professionals and confident in what they're saying, they should say, why did you do this? Or why do you believe this? Or how does this work? And they should be able, that's what I usually, I tell people when they look for red flags in social media, like when people just kind of take the trust me approach or they say studies show and they don't like source or reference anything, like call them out, ask them why, ask them how, what's the mechanism. I tell people all the time, like, I'm like, ask that fits what the mechanism is behind what they're saying. And I guarantee they won't be able to tell you the mechanism behind what they're saying. They're just regurgitating something they heard somewhere else, like the game of telephone. hundred mm-hmm. percent. So you mentioned earlier that you don't take one-on-one clients anymore. How does somebody work with you? So I do have, so essentially what I did, I was doing one-on-one clients and I had like 20 or 30 of them the first two years of my business. Um, but PhDs are hard. Um, and I think clients deserve a lot more emotional availability than I started to have. So I just let them slowly trickle off. Um, for anyone who's doing coaching, don't just do coaching just to 
program and regurgitate. The moral of that lesson is that I couldn't give people the parts of me they deserved. Um, Which are the parts so, between the reps and sets. Yes, the parts between the reps and sets. And so I did do some little one-off programming stuff here and there. But what I then ended up creating though is because I kind of, through one-on-one coaching, I really learned my niche of people who were coming with me to me. And so I created something called the little list method. And it's essentially four, five different program tracks that you can follow that are created by me that are progressive. And like you go through each month and I, I based it off of the people that were working with me. And I was like, well, you guys don't need to pay me this much for something that I can make for you for less. You know what I mean? That gives giving you more or less exactly what you need anyway, for at least the people that I'm, I'm working with. And it, it's, it's based off of largely like my, I work with a lot of people who are, I work with women majority, but I've gotten really into this niche of like helping women who want to combine resistance training with other modes of fitness. So a lot of them, like they do CrossFit, but they like want more strength training or a lot of my population is like runners and ultra runners because I run ultras. And so it's like, here's this program you can follow for part of the year, but then I have a program specific for like when they're race training, like you go into this program that helps you like modulate your volume for you. And so I've just created this cohort of programs. And then I have a handful of eBooks as well that are like uh, packed with like, I have a running one, a lifting one, a hybrid training one, and then a nutrition one. And I just like kind of pack them with science and usually get a tool that comes with them that kind of helps you apply what you've done within that. So those are the way that people work with me. They either buy my one-off eBooks and products if they want to learn more, or they just want like a tool and they don't want that more consistent dedication to a program or they join the little list method where they do get act like they can ask me questions and I have a community and I have all these resources built out and stuff like that. Um, so those are the two ways that people pretty much work with me. And then hanging out on Instagram. <laughs> and, where, and where can people find you on Instagram? Is it the best place to go? Yeah, I'm pretty much exclusively on Instagram. I just do not have the time capacity to get on TikTok and all those other things. Um, <laughs> it's too much work. Yeah, LinkedIn, um, LinkedIn I'm working on, but the other ones. I know, I need, I'm flying for jobs, so I need to go beef mine up. Um, at Little List Fitness, so L-I-E-T-L-E, like I'm small, I'm mm-hmm. five one little. Liss, my name is Alyssa, so L-Y-S-S, and then just fitness. And like my name's Alyssa Lennox, so you could probably just type that in as well. It comes up, um, that's pretty much the main place I hang out unless you want to get on my email list, which is also popping. Um, but those are pretty much the two ways that you can get all the free, fun information from me. Perfect. Liz, thank you so much for joining me on the show yeah. today. This yeah, good. awesome. This was good. This was this was good and different, just how you wanted it. That's so. it. That's how we got to do it. Can't be the same. Yeah. No, I love ranting about this stuff, so I'm happy to be on. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Active Life Podcast. If you did, please be sure to head to wherever you listened to it and give us a quality review as well as five stars if you can spare them. If you want more from us, feel free to follow all of our social media accounts at Active Life Professional, Active Life Rx, and Dr. Sean Pastuch on Instagram. Remember, at Active Life, we believe that the healthcare clinic of the future is the gym and the healthcare provider of the future is the coach. We also believe that that future is now. Time to run.